Uh, good morning, Doc. Good morning. Which one of you was uh, came to our house towards Raptors? Uh, that'd be me. Uh, I did that uh, about ten years ago, actually. Ah, okay. Yeah, that was a long so run. I didn't get to uh, experience that, and I'm very sad because mm -hmm. uh, Hunter was like, "Hey, man, you need to ask him about the Ward Raptors." So, uh, uh, being uh, being as into music as I am, like, yeah, like, would love to hear about some of the Ward Raptors stuff. Yeah, what's what's your what's your instrument? Uh, I grew up playing the viola. Oh, Hunter, cool. you call me a nerd later. We're fighting, you know. But yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I oh, grew up viola. playing the viola. Loved it. Uh, the only downside, obviously, I can't read music now because it's you know so, uh, you you only have your your music that you read. Most music's not written for the viola. Uh, mm -hmm. I got to do that for a little while. I got to understand acoustics. I got to understand everything. But just in general, a uh, a love for music. And uh, you know, I'll, I'll I'll tell you, it's it's music has been you know around me for a long time. I had an uncle who was a country music DJ that would take me into the studio, and I got to experience that. I did grow up playing in the orchestra. Uh, I also grew up, uh, you know, just, just following all music and, you know, meeting people, trading tapes, trading CDs, you know, but you, you realize the power kind of a music, I guess, and, and those things. And then, uh, you know, I, I understand that your family has a pretty rich history with music though, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah. My dad was a jazz musician first. Um, okay. and, uh, he's a world war two vet. He actually got uh, wounded by the Japanese in the Aleutian Islands. Whoa. And uh, I remember once after he passed away going through his stuff and I found a, a, a roll of film that he'd taken off a dead uh, Japanese soldier. And I was always curious, you know, what? who the guy was, you know, and uh, who, you know, if the family ever knew what happened to him, where he, where he ended up, his body ended up and so on. Yeah. So uh, never got to find out. Uh, that is well, a forgotten hard. battlefield. That's uh, a footnote in Hard history. to believe. You know, yeah. time the uh, continental United States was invaded during World War II, if you don't that's count right. our uh, yeah. territories in the Marianas and Wake. Uh, yeah, yeah. And it was a tough battle and just really awful uh, conditions for everyone involved. And yeah. it was yeah. ultimately uh, fruitless. Yeah, yeah. But uh, he, he uh, was always into jazz music, but he was interested in classical. So... Uh, uh, he started studying uh, classical. He was play actually playing music in the army too, and okay. then uh, uh, in uh, he ended up in New York, uh, living in New York, and uh, that's where he met my mom, who was a, a professional dancer and a choreographer, and uh, uh, they met over there and uh, headed off. And uh, I was born as a result. And uh, then when I was one year old, they, uh, they decided to, uh, my dad wanted to study classical uh, music more. So he wanted to go to Denmark to study with a well-known teacher uh, in Copenhagen. Wow. And uh, so they decided, okay, before we go, we better get married. So they asked me to be their best man. And I happily agreed. And uh, then so I'm one year old. We moved to Denmark for two years. He studied at the Royal Danish Conservatory. And my mom uh, started working in Danish radio and uh, taught uh, master classes to the Royal Danish Ballet uh, in American wow. style, you know, modern dance and so on, choreography. And then uh, uh, decided to move to uh, Vienna, Austria for two more years to study at the Vienna Academy uh, and uh, play jazz there too. My mom was working in Voice of America, which was the Blue Danube Network, uh, broadcasting to the soldiers stationed in the, what was then occupied Germany and uh, 
and uh, Austria and so on. So and the, uh, the early days of AFN, your mom's yeah, like crushing yeah, it. Wow. 1953, 1952-53, somewhere around there, early 50s, yeah. Because I was born in 49. And uh, so... Uh, How do you look younger than me? This is bullshit. <laughs> uh, one thing, thank you, mom, for your good name. <laughs> she learned to uh, live to almost 96. And, um, wow. you know, good, strong peasant stock, you know. No inbred junk. <laughs> and uh, so, uh, and also, of course, uh, walking my talk. You know, I was working uh, as a naturopathic doctor for 30-something years. So I had to be the example. You know, so many times I had people come to me who had been to a conventional doctor and they were trying to stop smoking. And the doctor, of course, was smoking too, you know. So <laughs> how do you teach somebody, you know, something that you're not doing yourself? You know, it reminds me of a story told about uh, Mahatma Gandhi. Uh, he was, you know, his habit was to, every week he would conduct open, you know, meetings. People, everyday people would be allowed to come to him and ask whatever, you know, say whatever they want to say. So one day he's sitting in his uh, home and this woman comes with her uh, little boy. And she says, uh, Mahatma, I want you to tell my boy to stop eating sugar because it's not good for him. And Mahatma looked at her and him, and, she, and he said, uh, very well, uh, come back in three weeks. And the mother said, okay. So three weeks later, she comes back, brings the boy, sits in front of Mahatma Gandhi, and uh, he looks at the boy and says, stop eating sugar. And the woman was uh, curious. <laughs> Why didn't you say that three weeks ago when we first came here? And he said, well, because three weeks ago, I too was eating sugar. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah well, yeah, that's walking the walk. So, but, so you've had mom's been in radio. Mom's been in with, uh, all, yeah. you know, obviously all these moms at the forefront. Uh, art yeah. is in your family. Yeah. Like yeah. you, you were obviously a very high, high vibrational person. Uh, you, you grew up around multiple arts. I mean, uh, you asked about me, what instrument I play. What, what about you? I mean, I, I, I hear your dad's pedigree. What, what about yourself? How's, how's your yeah. uh, music interest shaped? Well, after two years in, in Vienna, we moved to Prague, uh, which at that time was Czechoslovakia, before they split up into separate countries. And uh, it was under so, uh, Russian occupation at the time, too. Um, we, uh, 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 he... Uh, enrolled in or was uh, hired by the symphony Prague symphony over there my mom started working for radio Prague uh, doing English broadcast to West Africa and uh, she started a pantomime theater group there and uh, <clears throat> they uh, my dad and her formed a jazz a history of jazz show and they toured all around the country with it and uh, I was uh, put into first grade in Czech schools and I remember first day sitting in class in the front row looking at the blackboard and the Czech alphabet, you know, above, and I'm looking at, and I'm hearing sounds around me, you know, I, 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 I had no idea what the language was. I never heard it in my life wow. before. These, all these 33, you know, letters up there with things, you know, that letters I'd never seen in my life. And, uh, but within a year I was fluent and, uh, you know, speaking like a native, no accent. My brother was uh, two and a half years behind me, so he was in kindergarten, and then he uh, started going too. So I finished first through ninth grade in Czech schools, and at one point, my dad put me into the uh, enrolled me in the Prague Conservatory, and oh. I started studying classical guitar over there. So uh, it was sort of the first guitar my dad bought me. I was thirteen years old, my birthday, 
and it was this oh, god awful you know cheapy instrument with steel strings with the the strings so high you know I couldn't even begin to push those things push down and down, yeah. eating into my fingers you know and it was just torture. So finally, my dad got you know took pity and he bought a classical guitar, except this one wow, was built like a guitar. It, I mean, it was built like a violin with the fret above the board, and it also so that means the strings were high too. And yeah, yeah. it was a struggle, and it was a huge thing. You know, I remember carrying this thing in this case and thinking, my gosh, yes, I feel like I'm carrying a cello around. Um, so, but uh, and the the teaching was not very enlightened either. You know, the the teacher did her best to teach me. I was learning scales and learning Mozart pieces and, you know, little, you know, easy pieces. But she would often threaten and says, I'm going to make you get on stage and do, you know, our annual. I got got to stop you for just one second because of like how you just said that. I I, I love it's like like the, the, you're studying at a conservatory. Your, your, your levels are like above and beyond. Right. So like, you know, I think most of the time in America and you hear like, Oh, like it's a kid playing a scale. And then you just said, I learned simple pieces by Mozart. Right, and, and that's. <laughs> I mean, when we do simple pieces in America, it's uh, what's the Deep Purple song? Smoke on the water, like yeah, that's a simple yeah, piece, right? You know, like same thing. So uh, already just hearing yeah. your education, uh, mind blowing. Please continue. So anyway, she would threaten that if I didn't practice enough. She said, "I'm going to put you on with you know our annual concert." And you're going to embarrass yourself on stage, on stage unless you know the piece, you know. <laughs> so that didn't work to me. I, I, I hated it all the way. So finally, I finished ninth grade, and uh, my grades were so-so. I was not good enough to enroll at the universe, uh, Charles University, which was the premier university there. Uh, actually, not university. I enrolled in high school. Yeah, they have a different system oh, wow. there. You know, high school there is more equivalent of enrolling in, in uh, community college. Uh, okay, so uh, uh, I uh, my choices would have been enrolling in trade school, some trade school, or going to work in a coal mine or something, you know, weird like that. So she decided, okay, it's time to go back to the West, you know, because we were American citizens. We had U.S. passports. We can come and go anytime we wanted to, yeah. and uh, you know, we could purchase at the dollar stores and our. Czech family, I had relatives in Slovakia, and they were constantly saying, can you buy us some nylon stockings or blue jeans or whatever, you know, that ah, were yeah. highly prized at the time, you know. <laughs> it's so, like the, the duty, uh, duty-free duty type stuff, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly, yeah. So we, we went to Munich, <clears throat> Germany, and uh, my mom enrolled me in uh, high school there, what's called Oberrealschule in German. But I had my kindergarten German from Vienna 10 years before, you know, so it just didn't work. She tr- tried one school. We tried another school. Finally, the principal, you know, called my parents in. And I remember being embarrassed in class. You know, the teacher was going out of the, they were going out of the way to embarrass me to show that how incompetent it was and not knowing enough of the language. Uh-huh. Bring me up into the class, ask a question. And I'm trying to think, what's the German word for hydrogen? You know, this is a chemistry class. You know, it's just, oh, yeah, Wasserstoff, you know, and what's, oh, German, uh, oxid, you know, I just, it was embarrassing. And the biggest humiliation for me was uh, being in English class in, in this German high school, being fluent in English because we always spoke English at home, but being t- awful writing English because yeah. I never had an opportunity to write it, you know, and spelling to me, I would, I would try to spell phonetically the way I would yeah. write Czech, you know, and that just doesn't work in English. You know, English is the weirdest language where the exception is the rule, you know, and, uh, 
I feel sorry nowadays, you know, for people who are trying to learn English. I mean, it's the most god awful <laughs> language to try to learn. <laughs> uh, except maybe Vietnamese with the five tones. That's that's maybe worse. But uh, anyway. <clears throat> how, how many languages do you speak, Doc? Oh, I'm fluent in Czech. I know some Russian, a little German, a little Spanish. Uh, I've been studying some Tagalog, you know, the national language of yeah, the Philippines. Because I have a Philippine wife, you know. Uh, so... I love languages. To me, it's, yeah. it's you know, I, I just get a really get a kick. You know, one of my favorite websites to go is uh, Etem Online, where they tell you the derivation of words, where they you know, all the way back to Proto-Indo-European, you know, roots type, wow. type stuff. And uh, it's fascinating to me to figure out and discover what the original meanings of words were, and how we use them or misuse them nowadays too. You know how the, the absolutely you know. Uh, like recently, I was t- I've been telling people about the word courage. You know, a lot of people don't know what the word courage comes from. You know, it comes from the Latin cur, which means heart. So if you're being courageous, you're literally coming from your heart. And I thought, oh, cool, I like that. You know, yeah. Well, like uh, it's like, <laughs> yeah. like living pon- like like living pono, right? Yeah, yeah. Or the word inspired. You know, people don't stop and think that inspired literally means being in spirit. You know, in spiritus. Yeah. You know, inspired. Yeah. So again, I, live, again, live, live in Pono. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So. Um, Shout I, out to our friend Kelsey for that one. Okay. Yeah. Another musician. Oh, Welcome, link you guys up. Yeah. After struggling in, in for six months in Munich, my mom said, "Okay, that's enough. Uh, we're moving back to America." Uh, my dad had a bunch of contracts. He had formed a jazz group, and he had a bunch of contracts, obligations for uh, performances throughout Germany. So uh, he had to wait and you know fulfill that stuff. So we moved to uh, his sister's place in Willimantic, Connecticut, for six months, where uh, eventually my dad joined us. And, uh, and then we moved to Hartford, Connecticut, for a year, where he was playing in Hartford Symphony and uh, yeah. doing odd jobs, you know, working as a ditch digger, Picking that, picks and shovel stuff, you know, to uh, make ends meet. meet uh, uh, and then they started auditioning for different uh, musical jobs uh, for a better uh, position. Mm-hmm. And uh, I went with him to Montreal uh, and he auditioned up there. And uh, that's where I discovered how snobbish the Montrealese can be. I remember uh, we went to a restaurant uh, to have lunch. And we look at the menu, it's all in French, you know, so we're trying to figure out because none of, neither one of us spoke French, yeah? So we're looking, and I said, what does this mean? So we asked, you know, the waiter to help us out. He says, uh, what's this? And he has no help whatsoever. He says, uh, you know, all I hear is this French sound, you know? And uh, finally, after 10 minutes of struggling, trying to figure out what to order, we, we think we ordered something and we hope it's, you know, what we think it is. And the guy goes, the, the waiter goes to the kitchen door, he opens up and he starts yelling the order in English to the cook who only spoke English, you know? <laughs> oh my gosh. We were pissed. Yeah. So the guys, anyway, so then he also auditioned for, uh, and he got accepted by uh, uh, Birmingham, Alabama Orchestra. Mm-hmm. And he also got offered a position in uh, Kansas City, Kansas. And he got offered a position in uh, Veracruz, Mexico. And then he was in New York City, uh, you know, for more auditions. And he's standing at in Times Square with his bass, waiting for a stop you know, sign to change. And a man walks up to him and says, uh, I see you're a bass player. Um, my name is George Barati. I'm the conductor of the Honolulu Symphony. Would you be in- interested in auditioning for me? 
So my dad says, wow. okay. So they go to the hotel room. My dad auditions. They both, you know, Barati out of the water uh, because my dad uh, was often playing uh, cello repertoire, you know, doing solo concerts with his sister who was a concert pianist wow, because there's wow. not, not much repertoire at the time for the bass, you know. And yeah, so he yeah. was pretty facile with his instrument. And George says, I want you to be my uh, principal bass player in the Honolulu Symphony. So he, uh, my dad comes back home and he says, okay, uh, yeah, we have a family conference. You know, what, where do we go? So he says, okay, well, uh, I've been accepted by, uh, you know, in Alabama and my Birmingham orchestra. And my mom says, don't they lynch people over there? You know, and so that was mixed out. And then my dad said, well, okay, how about Kansas City? And my mom said, man, that's just flat nothing, nothing there, nothing interesting, you know? So that makes that. And then he said, well, how about Veracruz, Mexico? And my mom said, yeah, but that's a foreign country. It's not America anymore, you know? And then he said, well, how about Honolulu, Hawaii? And you know, he said, yes. <laughs> so we piled everything up into our Ford station wagon and uh, cruised over the continental U.S. I remember crawling over the Rocky Mountains with our back totally packed with suitcases on top of a pile of suitcases and on top of that two bass, you know, uh, contrabass on top of that. So we had about two and a half inch clearance, just jug, 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 trying to make our Ford Falcon station wagon go over the top of, you know, of, of the Rocky Mountains and uh, uh, flew, uh, put the, 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 the car onto a container, uh, Matson, and then flew over and we landed in Honolulu and um, just to compare, when we first came to America, uh, this was my welcome to America. We took a freighter from Rotterdam, and the freighter's name was the Black Turn. And uh, uh, by the th end of the voyage, I was calling it the Black Turd because uh, it was a huge freighter, and it had a berth for about five passengers. You know, we were most of them. And uh, uh, a hurricane struck. So the captain kept going south, 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 trying to outrun you know, get around the hurricane, but what would have been a four-day tri uh, trip turned out to be an 11-day trip. And I remember going through the seas, you know, we had 60-foot swells crashing over the boat, and when the whole front of the boat would just disappear, and the pilot, you know, the, the house, uh, you know, the bridge would just be smashed yeah, yeah. with, you know, I was thinking, how, how, how old were you? How old were you? Uh, uh, 17. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Wow. And I'm thinking, my gosh, you know, the boat's underwater. The whole boat's underwater. <laughs> Somehow we'd come out of it, you know, and then the next one. So finally we land. You know, I, I spent the whole wow. voyage vomiting with seasickness. My poor brother, you know, uh, projectile vomiting the whole time. I remember going into the into the bathroom, you know, and the toilet would be down there, and then it'd be in your face, and it'd be down there in your face. You know, just yeah, like, yeah. my gosh, yeah, indeed, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then I went by the buffet, you know, and, and I'd see all this wonderful food, and I said, shit, you know, I can't even eat this stuff, you know. <laughs> oh, what a waste. Anyway, finally we arrive, we arrive in the, in the, uh, the docks, you know, this is a freighter, freight docks, mm -hmm. yeah, and it's just nobody there, just totally abandoned. And I, my sister, my dad's sister, my aunt, you know, drives up. Oh, and I drives up. She parked outside and then walks across this huge freight yard, abandoned freight truck, and uh, is there to greet us, you know. So we greet her and we're helping, you know, carrying stuff. And we're walking across this huge yard. And off in the distance, I see this figure kind of 
staggering back and forth, back and forth. And I'm wondering, what is that? You know, who is that? And then it, it turns out to be a man and he's coming closer. And I realize what's happening. He's walking and he's got his fly opening. He's holding his dick and he's urinating as he's walking. He's totally drunk out of his skull, you know. And to me, that became embedded as welcome to America. You know, that, that was my welcome. So here's the contrast. We land in Honolulu. This is before the terminal and everything, yeah? So the, the, the stair truck drives up, and the door opens up, and I immediately get this whiff of flowers. I say, oh, wow. And then I come out the door, and down at the foot of the stairs is this beautiful young woman in a bikini holding flower lays. Next to her is a photographer, and she's offering me a lay. And I'm thinking, yes, this is the right place. <laughs> I'm home, you know? But it took me 10 years. Uh, to finally feel like this is home because before, one year old, uprooted, Denmark, two years, uprooted, Vienna, two years, uprooted, Prague, 10 years, uprooted, Germany, uprooted, different language, different culture, I don't belong, I don't belong, uprooted, Willimantic, Hartford, and finally here. Um, you know, I was for 10 years, I constantly had this feeling when are we going to go next? You know, uh, where are we yeah, going yeah. next? Yeah, you know, when are we going to uproot it? I didn't feel like I belong. I felt like a virtual foreigner in my own country because when I landed in Connecticut, I said, could not relate to the culture. It was strange. I heard these weird American accents that were just like, wow, wow, wow. I said, what? Yeah, I remember sitting in class. You know, uh, I just joined the, the uh, Willimantic uh, High School, Buckley High School. And I'm sitting in the, in, in the classroom, and the teacher comes up with a note in her hand, and she says, Wad, I have a note for Wad. And, you know, I'm, I don't know who's Wad, you know. And around me, people start giggling, you know, and looking at me. I'm thinking, why are they looking at me? And the teacher comes up to me and says, are you Wad? I said, no, ma'am, my name is Ward. <laughs> and she thought uh, I was making fun uh, of her. You know, and she, I mean, I've never had, even lived in a foreign country, and I had the same thing moving to the south. The first time hearing yeah. somebody say Michael over Mackle, and yeah. I was like, what? "That's not my name. Stop!" Yeah. You know? So yeah, I mean, language, all that stuff, it can be a trip. So yeah, She's I'm only awesome. imagining what it was like for you though. Denmark, Prague, the Czech yeah. Republic, back everywhere. Making yeah, she thought I was making fun of her. I ended up in detention, you know, and I thought, man, this this is wrong, you know, weird, weird stuff. So Hawaii was kind of like a nice. It was America, but it wasn't America. You know, it's just, it was, it's its own world. It's, there's no place in the world like it. Another thing that was cool, that. I discovered about Hawaii is that virtually everybody's a minority. You know? Yep. Uh, everywhere else in the U.S., you know, it's a bunch of white people, a bunch of black people, or whatever, you know, uh, but somebody is in a majority. You know? And here I was, I thought, wow, this is so cool. You know? And I just felt very very welcome, very fitting, you know, everybody fit in, and uh, the aloha spirit, you know, to me that was very real, and I immediately started connecting with the Hawaiian culture here, too. I met some kahuna, you know, the first one I met was a man named Sam Lono, who uh, had his home uh, in Haiku Valley, on the windward side, cool. and uh, he was, he would conduct sessions and talk about Hawaiian spirituality and such, you know, in, in Hawaiian language, wow. mostly, so I had to learn fast. And uh, I met other kahuna from other places. And so that was the beginning of my awakening. I call it the awakening, you know, uh, into uh, different ways of looking at the world, that what, what turned out to be the holistic Beautiful. view, you know, where the Hawaiians view things as being part of nature, being stewards of nature, rather than the Western view of we're out to conquer and subjugate nature. You know, we're, we're out to, 
to to f fight the you know the righteous war. You know we're we're the exceptional people, and we gotta bring our way of life to the rest of the world because we are right. You know, and we, even in healing and health, we had the war on cancer and the war on disease and fighting infection. You know, it's all these belligerent, uh, you know, uh, us against you type of, of uh, uh, attitude. Which was totally I mean, different from yeah, holistic view. We're yeah. we're saying that like so much right now in, in such a weird way. And I mean I, I got it. You know, I mean everybody to me it's and I, I am I, I know that uh you know it's a touchy subject. I am vaccinated, you know, and I did so so that I can travel freely, I can do whatever. I'm seeing yeah. research. Uh, you know, like when we start talking just about like the division and start talking about that, like uh, you know, what what can we do? From your expert opinion, as a you know, coming from where you come from, yeah, how do we live healthier through this? I mean, not just with the land here, but I mean, you know, is there something we need to be doing more, like eating from the land more? Because we do respect iron and we do that. I know that we, you know, we get a lot of things. Hawaii is lovely because I, I mean, I, I'm fresh papaya outside my apartment. I mean, this isn't, you know, it's not. You like you said, it's different. It's completely different. It's beautiful. We have all that. Yeah. yeah. What, what what can we do with, you know, especially in the eye of like this pandemic? I mean, you know, there's got to be something more than just wear your mask, stay home. Right. Like what 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 can we do to live this healthier, especially if we can tie it back? Because now here's the other thing, too. Like, you know, what are we looking at? You know, we're looking at, uh, you know, grocery stores even. I don't know if you've been. Some of the shelves aren't looking as full as they used to be kind of thing. You know, like we're seeing spikes in prices and things like that. What do you recommend for us? Like, how, how do we how do we get through in such a bad pandemic? How do we just keep living better? Yeah, well, a lot of people asking that same question, obviously, and uh, I can share some of my what I've learned over the. I practiced uh, naturopathic medicine for thirty something years, uh, and uh, so I've seen a lot. Uh, I've seen people coming in for all kinds of uh, reasons. And um, it comes down to basics in people's lives. You know, if, first of all, everything starts from my uh, standpoint with the level of uh, beliefs. In other words, the beliefs that we hold to are the glasses through which we view our, our entire lives. We, are view, we view ourselves and we are, uh, view our world around us. In other words, the beliefs that you hold to or the beliefs that you hold to tell you and dictate what you observe and what you ignore. What you do and what you avoid doing, what you notice, what you don't notice, you know, uh, what you move towards and what you uh, move away from. Uh, it, it's, it controls everything. It, it controls what you eat and what you avoid, you know, what you learn and what you avoid learning. Uh, how much stress level there is in you, you know, versus how much peace and, and serenity in you. So that is the first level that everybody has to work at. And, and I came to that conclusion, especially towards the end of my practice, because throughout the years, I'd be working with people and we come up with a diagnosis. You know, I do lab tests, whatever x-ray, you know, whatever needs to be done. I say, okay, this is what's going on with you. This is what you need to do to, uh, to fix the problem. You'll be good to go if you follow these steps. Okay. Sure. And then they wouldn't do it. They wouldn't, they wouldn't follow the steps. Shocking, and, right? Yeah. In some cases I ask, okay, well, you know, I'd have some, for example, uh, workman's comp, you know, cases, you know, on a job injuries, whatever. Yeah. And I'd ask some of them, well, why aren't you getting better? Why, you know, why aren't you doing this? Well, I'm, I like getting the benefits. I don't have to work. You know? So that would be one reason. Again, based on beliefs. You know? uh, other reasons would be uh, um, I had one young guy come to me, young Vietnamese man in his 20s. 
he had uh, when he was a teenager had uh, um, uh, come down with cancer. Oh, I forget awful. what the cancer was, but anyway, he decided to follow the Mitsuyokushi uh, 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 system of uh, diet from developed in Japan, and okay. uh, uh, he got better. The, he went into remission, wow. and wow. then you know, then recently it all came back, roaring back again. And so I asked Momo, wow. "Why aren't you? Are you going back on that diet?" He said, "No." I said, "Why not?" Well, I don't know, you know. <laughs> And so I, we did a diagnosis. I did a bunch of tests. I ordered some stuff from Canada, some, you know, thymus stimulation, bunch of other things. Uh, but at that time, I wasn't facile and skilled with uh, dealing with beliefs yet. Okay. Wow. So uh, I get everything together and he doesn't show up, you know, to, to start the program. So I call his number and his parents answer the phone. And I said, well, you know, I was expecting your son to be here to, so he can start the protocol to help him heal. And I said, oh, no, he's not coming. Uh, I said, why not? Oh, it's God's will. You know, so again, a, a belief, fundamental belief, you know, uh, he's just going to stay here and we're accepting that he's dying. So I said uh, to myself, no way. You know, so I went over to his place in, in Salt Lake. And I knocked on the door of the condominium and the parents opened the door. And I said, I'm here to, to help your son. You know, I'm, I know we can do a lot of good if you just let me, you know, work with him. And they said, no, no, sorry. No, no, we're not allowing uh, no more. He, you know, it's God's will. He will die. Uh, and we accept and he accepts. And I pleaded them with them, try to find a way. And they just, no, it was just shut door and that was it. So again, based on beliefs. You know, the possibility of belief was there. It just didn't happen. The opposite end of the spectrum, another guy who uh, uh, had uh, was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And uh, this uh, actually was not my patient, but it was told to me by another patient who was his secretary. Uh, he was a well-known writer. And... Uh, so the doctor said, uh, you have, you know, so many weeks to live. Uh, you should go home, put your affairs in order and uh, take it easy. Don't exert yourself, you know, try to conserve your energy as much as possible. So the man said, well, if I'm going to die, I'd rather spend my last days doing what I love to do most, which is to write. So he yeah. said he went home and he started to write. He started the journal. And his secretary was there, you know, to help, you know, take notes for him, whatever. And he started journaling and journaling and journaling. And 20 years later, he was still journaling. He had unterminated himself. That, that's, yeah. uh, that's beautiful. That's, that really yes. is. I mean, like, you know, that, and no, never know what it was. It might've been a day to day, but you know, that yeah. you, you just, you just said a lot of different things. And one of the things you said is beliefs. And I'm not saying it isn't, uh, no one believes in COVID, but let's say that we are in a, uh, cause the type of medicine that you deal with, Let's face it, you know, I mean, like you deal with hippies that are not going to do stuff. You deal with people who are just sick of Western medicine. You deal with people looking for an alternate cure. They don't want to suck down opioids. They don't want to do whatever. From, right. from that standpoint, right. what does a person who, you know, seeks your type of healing, you know, mm -hmm. they don't want to run to big pharmacy. They don't want to do all this. What protocols and what beliefs like bring them to that? But But not just that. How, when we talk about this, right, you're taking a person whose beliefs told them don't get the vaccine, they get COVID, how do you, how do you treat them? 
Honestly. Yeah. Well, in most cases, people who do get the vaccine uh, don't have to be concerned about coming down with uh, severe enough symptoms where they have to be hospitalized or worse, uh, which is, I think, the main benefit of the vaccine. Uh, I've been kind of ambivalent for a long time. Uh, people would, uh, I had never vaccinated. Uh, well, when I grew up, I grew up the old fashioned way. I got the chicken pox, I got the measles, I got the mumps, you know, and so I'm immune yeah. for life, you know. Uh, right. Except that the herpes uh, vet, um, virus is still in me because I had the chicken pox. Uh, but uh, when people would come to me uh, asking about vaccinations, um, I would say, you know, personally, I don't recommend. But here's the information. I give them a stack of information. You make up your own choice. You know, it's, it's your decision. Sure. It's your life. Yeah. But uh, more recently, uh, I have a special needs daughter. Uh, she just turned 30. Uh, cerebral palsy quadriplegic, nonverbal, uh, beautiful young woman. Um, let's see, where is she? Here she is. Picture of her. All right, so I can yeah. move it just a little bit. Move yeah. it in front of your face, we can't see her. Yeah, uh, she is in her wheelchair. So she's a wonderful young woman, uh, nonverbal. She uses a special computer to uh, oh, cool. communicate with. And uh, so um, I researched and I decided that she would be okay for her to ha have the polio, the oral polio shot. And uh, <clears throat> then uh, her mom actually, without me knowing, gave her, because we're separated, gave her the MMR uh, sh uh, shot. But I decided the tetanus shot would be okay also. Then um, okay. she did end up, uh, because of severe scoliosis over the uh, her early 20s, early late teens, early 20s, she ended up with like eight or nine operations at Shriners, uh, but they only could do the operations uh, if she had chickenpox uh, vaccination. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So we consented because we had no choice. You know, her she was so badly, it was like 130 degree, you know, uh, mm -hmm. scoliosis, 90 degree torsion. It was starting to endanger her organs, you know, so we had to do it. <clears throat> so uh, they gave her a chicken pox vaccine and two days later she came down with chicken pox, which I thought was interesting. You know, uh, <clears throat> it was a attenu attenuated virus, you know, which is not as, not as strong as a regular virus, but it was enough to trigger just a little oh, bit, yeah, yeah. two, three days of, of, you know, mild rash, not whole body thing. So, um, so that's the only vaccinations that she's had. Yeah. But then uh, when COVID uh, came up, uh, I did some more research on that and uh, looked at Johnson, looked at uh, Pfizer, looked at Moderna, and I decided that of the three, Moderna was the best uh, made and the, with the least likely of uh, negative side effects. But all along, of course, me and my family, always uh, big on supplements, all the, the, the big what, what antioxidants. Do you, what, what do you recommend that uh, that, that people well, would, would take? And, uh, yeah, and then not, let's say it's a non-vaxxed or even a vaxxed person, you know, mm -hmm. what would you recommend, you know, naturally that they treat themselves yeah. with? Well, uh, before supplements, of course, the basics of good nutrition. You know, don't okay. eat junk food. You know, don't go, don't live off of McDonald's or Burger King. You know, don't. Uh, consume shakes and, and soda pop and, you know, the, the obvious junk and living off pizza. You know, uh, yeah, first thing, yeah. the most important thing I tell people who come to me on general, for general advice, is uh, cut out the carbos, you know, uh, the refined carbos. The, anything mm -hmm. made out of, out of wheat, you know, that is, has dough, you know, pizza, bread, uh, 
you know, breadsticks, uh, you know, cake, obviously. And number two, cut on anything with uh, sugar in it. Okay. So, uh, you know, every once in a while, if you want a, a good cake from Whole Food, you know, don't get a junky one from someplace else. Uh, or or uh, a pumpkin pie or carrot cake or something like that, you know. It's not going to kill you. If you absolutely have to have ice cream, then go for some the high high end stuff like Haagen Dazs. You know, which look at the ingredients. If your first ingredient is cream, you know it's good. Okay. You know, if the first ingredient is is low fat milk and then a bunch of you know cryogenin and and coloring and stuff, you know. Yeah. And especially if you read the label, and you not only can't pronounce it, but you have no idea what it is, don't eat it. Probably you know? don't eat it, right? <laughs> Common sense stuff, right? Yeah. Look absolutely. at the label, or better yet, eat eat things that don't need a label. You know, like real food, produce, okay. you know, vegetables, fruits, you know, things that and grains, you know, that you had to cook. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so it's common sense stuff. You know, um, <clears throat> the reason I I tell people cut out carbos and especially sugar because they're highly inflammatory. Oh, and wow. that, to me, is the number one issue for most people is uh, low-grade chronic inflammation, which then, you know, attracts junk. Like in the, in the veins and arteries, it att- inflammation makes the surface sticky for things like cholesterol and calcium buildup, you know, and you end up with atherosclerosis yeah, yeah. or, you know, and so on. Uh, it affects all of your organs. It affects your brain because now the oxygen can't exchange as well. The waste product can be eliminated as well. You know, so uh, you end up with brain fog, shrinking brain, you know, uh, Alzheimer's, dementia, and all that junk. You know, that wow. is so prevalent nowadays. You know, foggy thinking. Um, and then, of it, course, it just reminds me. It reminds me of that meme, uh, and uh, and I'm seeing it. It's the the obese, morbidly obese person yeah. wearing yeah. the mask but holding the yeah. bag of McDonald's, and it's yeah. like, yeah. get vaccinated for my health, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, uh, well, that's know, another but, reason why I love living in Hawaii is because. Uh, uh, we have the year-round weather, you know, good weather, yeah, so we outdoors all the time. And for the most part, uh, people are in pretty good shape. I remember f- flying back to Portland uh, uh, for a, uh, a conference, a naturopathic uh, medical conference, and getting off the airport you know, uh, in Portland, and I'm looking around and says, my God, look at all these white, fat people. You know? <laughs> I just couldn't believe, you know, I just... It looks so strange after seeing, you know, mostly slender, well, less so now, but in those days, you yeah. know, mostly slender, yeah. you know, healthy yeah. looking. You, you see, you're right. You're absolutely right. Yeah. It, it is. It's culturally, it's different. I mean, you know, yeah. uh, we, we see people that are getting plenty of vitamin D here. We see people yeah. who take, you know, health a lot more serious. And, yeah. and you know, it, it's harder. I mean, you know, uh, I, I grew, I, I lived in. Uh, New England, not far from where you were in Hartford and Springfield, Mass, right across the border there. And, Mm -hmm. you know, people deal with a lot of stuff, seasonal depression, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, back to the, uh, so now cleaning everything up. Yeah. Yeah. Let's uh, ask about those supplements and then also about treatment. Yeah. So the the most basic thing, obviously, besides the the nutrition, the beliefs levels and so on, Mm -hmm. is uh, your, your big what I call the, the big three of antioxidants. You know, vitamin C obviously is number one. Uh, okay. Ascorbic acid in its various forms. Some people go for the straight ascorbic acid uh, or you can get the mineral form, you know, like magnesium ascorbate, calcium ascorbate, whatever. It doesn't really matter too much as long as okay. you get okay. the ascorbate in you. Uh, you know, two or three grams a day minimum 
uh, spaced out throughout the day because when it's in ascorbic acid form, it tends to wash out of the body really fast. So you want to kind of sustain it, you know. Um, and just to give you an example of how much a human, average human probably needs, uh, most animals make their own vitamin, vitamin C. It's only humans and guinea pigs and, you know, a uh, few others that don't, we don't have the right enzyme to make our vitamin C. But by comparison, take an average goat, you know, 140, 160 pound goat, which is close to the human body mass. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, when you measure how much an average goat like that, uh, how much vitamin C they make in a, in a day, it's around close to seven grams a day, you know, 7,000 milligrams. So if that's what a goat needs and goats traditionally, uh, you know, we know goats can eat all kinds of crap and stay healthy. You know, uh, they don't have to worry about getting sick. You know, so right, if that's right. uh, if if that's something to take into consideration, then you know, two to three would be considered a minimum of vitamin C, uh, two to three grams. Yeah, <clears throat> uh, wow, vitamin. Wow. You mentioned vitamin D, um, mm-hmm. uh, D three, the colocalciferol. You know, the active form of vitamin D three. Uh, very essential. It, most people think of D as only, you know, being associated with bone building and strength, bone strength. You know, we think of, of D deficiency uh, associated with rickets, but that's only one of the thousands of things that vitamin D is involved with. It's actually a pretty potent antioxidant too, mostly mm-hmm. focusing on the, the uh, maintaining the integrity of cell walls, you know, which are these wow. Wow. fluid, uh, lipid, um, you know, mixed uh, phospholipid membranes that are so essential to our life and well-being and that are actually the cell membranes are actually the brains of the body you know mo- most people think oh the dna is is the is the brains but no the the dna is just the blueprint but the cell walls are the ones that decide what do we do with the blueprint blueprint you know what what do we actually bring in what do we bring out you know and it's it's the great orchestrator of everything all our functioning so vitamin d is essential for that uh, to help, you know, keep everything functioning, especially the mitochondria, those little energy factories in each of our body uh, body cells, that are actually our our little uh, uh, symbiotes. You know, most people don't think of themselves as symbiotic beings, but we are totally symbiotes. You know, uh, the, the symbiotes are when two or more organisms decide to coexist together for mutual benefit. You know, so like, glad, so yeah, like like coral, for example. Uh, is the little hydra-like thing, but also it could not live without those little plastids inside, you know, the little uh, uh, things that give it the, the color that actually, you know, transform light into energy and, and feed, feed the hydra, you know. So those two are in symbiotic relationship. Somewhere in a distant past, you know, when the first cells formed on our planet Earth, uh, our proto, proto-eukaryote cell decided to join up with another bacteria that, and then that bacteria became the mitochondria, and the mitochondria produces all the energy in our cells, and then the cells produ- provide the, the environment and the protection and the nutrition back to the mitochondria. So it's a symbiotic relationship. And then on top of that, we have more bacteria and virus and, and, uh, and fungal cells living in our bodies than our bodies consist of, of actual human cells. You know, the average human cells may be around 60, 70 trillion cells, there's maybe 100 trillion bacteria and fungal and viral particle cells and, propion, you know, prions and so on that actually live inside of our body so that we're more non-human than we are actually human. And those wow, bacteria in our guts, yeah, the bacteria in our guts, actually a lot of people call it our second immune system 
uh, and also uh, uh, part of our second brain, you know, because the interaction between the bacteria in our guts with the nervous system surrounding the gut walls, and then we have a nervous system in our in our heart, which is also another brain, and then we of course we have the nervous system of our you know a brain itself mm -hmm. and a spine. Those three together work in symbiotic relationship. If any one of them is off, we're in big trouble. You know? So we got to keep those bacteria happy in our guts too, which means feeding right. ourselves the proper nutrition that uh, nourishes them and encourages the right pH environment and so on so that those bacteria can thrive, the right kind of bacteria in the right proportions. You know, we have all kinds, we have thousands of, of different strains of bacteria living in us. Most of them are, b are beneficial or benign. And there's a few that are not benign, that are harmful, but they're kept in check because there's enough of the good guys to keep the balance, you know. But if the Absolutely. good guys uh, are, are uh, damaged in some way, for example, we'll go through a course of antibiotics, which are, are broad-spectrum antibiotics that don't discriminate between good guys and bad guys and just wipe us clean. And then the body right. is, is, you know, trying to clean out. We get the diarrhea and the thrush and all these other things, you know, <coughs> yeah. opportunistic stuff. That and they treated, uh, unfortunately, they treated one of my uh, really good friends with so many antibiotics when he yeah. uh, he had he had he had the he had the really bad COVID. He was in the hospital yeah. for like 60 yeah. days or something bad. And, uh, you know, he almost died. He was, you know, intubated yeah. uh, multiple times. But yeah. they cleaned him with antibiotics so bad because he kept getting uh, pneumonia in addition to yeah. the COVID. Yeah. And I mean, he's to the point he'll never be able to take a, an antibiotic again. Yeah. You know, uh, it's crazy how much, you know, they they've they've literally wreaked havoc by taking all that gut bacteria and, yeah. you know, demonizing it, basically. Yeah. 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 So obviously, when you finish your one week or 10 day typical course of antibiotics, the first thing you do is got to repopulate the good guys and right. put the, the, the probiotics, the good guys and the prebiotics back into your body so they can uh, thrive and get reestablished again. Yeah. Yeah. So that's all part of uh, being healthy too. Um, the other supplement I like is vitamin K, also an antioxidant. And most people, it's one of those forgotten, you know, most people don't think about vitamin K. Uh, yeah. I'm taking a multiple and it happens to be one of the you know things listed there. But vitamin yeah. K is, is a powerful uh, antibiotic, I mean antibiotic, powerful uh, uh, antioxidant and uh, a, a good support of health too. And then there's a whole bunch of herbs. Uh, I like uh, one herb... Uh, I like is astragalus, membranaceous, which is a good uh, immune stimulus. There's a whole bunch of uh, of uh, what I call the uh, uh, that are known as adaptogen herbs, which literally means they help you adapt to stress of environment or world or internal or external stress, whatever it is. Yeah. So um, ashwagandha is well known. Um, uh, Shizandra is a well known one. Uh, Elithrothrucococcus syntichosis, uh, the so-called the Siberian ginseng, and all sure. the whole ginseng family, the Chinese, Korean, you know, all good uh, adaptogenic herbs. There's a, a bunch more, but uh, out of the thousands and thousands of herbs that we know about and utilize, um, there's maybe about 10, 15 herbs that are the pure adaptogens, and those are pretty much the only ones that you could you can pretty much take them forever if you want to. Unlike other herbs where you can only take them for a certain time and then you have to stop, you know, because the body needs to uh, break or something, yeah. What so, about uh, re regarding an infected person? You know, what, what herbs or supplements would you re recommend well, helping to uh, kick this thing's butt? 
Yeah, everything that I already mentioned would be uh, part of the regimen there. Uh, okay. Obviously, when somebody's infected, I would up the doses of things like vitamin C. You can easily go to 12 grams, 15 grams a day. Uh, you can go to what's known as bowel to tolerance. And so you don't take it all at once. You know, just spread it out throughout the day so that you don't end up with the runs because the osmotic pressure of too much ascorbic acid will start drawing water into the gut and you get the runs, you know. So, uh, but if you draw it out, uh, you don't have to worry about that. Uh, and then uh, one of my favorite uh, things that I like to use is something I get from down to earth here uh, called uh, uh, Oregano Plus. It's a mixture of oregano oil diffused into uh, colloidal silver. And uh, it's, uh, so the go gubernatorial candidate, BJ Penn, just posted something talking specifically about oregano oil. So he said it cured his COVID in three days. That was that, I mean, I don't know how true that is. I don't know if he had, you know, monocloic, uh, you know, I don't know what else he had. But, yeah. you know, specifically he said this. Yeah. To cure in three days. So yeah, what, you yeah, I love. You can't go by incidental reports because you have no idea what else he was doing, you know, what his sure. state of his immune system was or anything like that. But I can tell you from personal experience and from use for years with my patients for uh, any upper respiratory stuff and also a lot of uh, gut infections and stuff like that. Um, I just love uh, colloidal, colloid, no, it's not oregano, but it's called colloidal plus, colloidal plus. And I hope uh, this doesn't cause a run on the store <laughs> because sometimes they run out and I have a hard time getting it for myself. Uh, colloidal you, you, plus. You got, you got a little bit before this episode drops, so, you know, you just got time to go to the, go to the store. Yeah. Yeah, so I've anyway, used uh, colloidal silver and oil of oregano every time I feel like maybe I'm coming yeah. down with something. I like well, the oil is, uh, of oregano because you take it orally yeah. and well, you get that yeah. oregano feel in your mouth for the last couple hours. Yeah, well, here's a specific specific way that I recommend that you take it to make it much more effective. Uh, the Colloidal Plus is, is a liquid, and it's really intense stuff, okay? It has a lot of oregano oil, which is very intense. Uh, don't buy oregano oil that's been cut with a lot of other oil, like almond oil water, which you, know, you take a drop, and it's like, nah, you know, nothing much there. Uh, you want the – if you take it pure stuff, it needs to be diluted a bit because it will burn like heck. But uh, the Colloidal Plus is pretty intense, and this is the way you do it. You uh, take, uh, you put, well, depending on how uh, tough you are, you know, some people, they cannot, ah, I can't stand it, you know, and so we got to modify. But for the average person and a tough person, uh, if you can do it, take two droppers in your mouth and then you don't swallow it. You hold it in your mouth and you purse your lips like it's going to suck, suck through a straw. And tilt your head a little bit so that when you suck in, you're going to be bubbling through the liquid in your mouth. And you take a slow draw, just. And you're going to feel the fumes of the oregano oil going down your trachea, down into your lungs. And you're going to feel the warmth just spreading, spreading down into your lungs. And it's going to be intense. And you're going to go. You know, just, and then when you can't stand anymore. You reverse and you close your mouth and you breathe out through your nose. So now the fumes go through your sinuses and out your nose. So you're this getting is, it, this is yeah. This is what the how they cured the uh, uh, spread of COVID, uh, mm -hmm. not with oregano oil, but they were doing a a nasal and throat wash. Uh, yeah, well, I, I forget what they were using, but this is this is yeah. exactly what this sounds like, just with oregano. Uh, 
yeah, it's not a nasal lavage, which means you, you're squirting the liquid up your nose and, and spitting it out your mouth. You know, it's different. Mm-hmm. You're doing the fumes of the oregano oil. Okay. okay. So, and you do another cycle, just a slow, you know, 10 second, as much as you can stand. If something burns so much, you, you got to stop and you reverse and you blow out, you close your mouth, you blow it through your nose. So it goes through your sinuses, out your nose. Yeah. So your whole respiratory system gets coated by this oregano oil. By this, by doing it this way, and then of course the the colloidal silver itself goes to work, and it's killing all the bacteria and viruses in your throat, your tonsils, you know, and uh, your whole oral cavity there too. So you do, if you can do three, at least maybe five cycles of this, you, the more the better, until your saliva is diluted so much that it's no longer you're not getting that burning mode. Then you swallow it. Okay. Wow. And you do that uh, three times a day or or more, depending on how severe your symptoms are. Man, that will do a job on you. It will clear it out real fast. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I got chills. I got to pause. Yeah. I got to pause you. Uh, If I go more than an hour, then it gets much more difficult to edit. So I'm going to pause the recording. Okay. I was going to ask if uh, we could uh, take a break, switch gears when we come back. Recording is on. So, Doc, as I'm filling up this water bottle real quick, uh, we, you talked about uh, the supplementation and, and treating, and we've given us some insights on things that I, I had never even heard. What, uh, uh, what, what else? I mean, what, what can we close out uh, treatment with? Well, as far as uh, supplementation, I would have added, uh, I would add uh, the main minerals, uh, zinc and magnesium, uh, which tend to be in uh, insufficient amounts in uh, most people. Especially here in Hawaii, magnesium can be depleted very quickly. We're in a tropical area, so we sweat, and uh, that comes out of the body pretty fast. Magnesium is an essential mineral in hundreds and hundreds of essential reactions, especially in those involving energy production. So uh, that's that's a big one, and it can be taken in all kinds of form. I give my daughter uh, in the form of magnesium citrate, which is kind of like a fizzy uh, sour tasting liquid with a little juice, you know, so she likes that. Uh, it helps her relax her body because she's a bit athetoid and spastic, you know. So, um, and then, of course, uh, exercise. It doesn't have to be anything, you know, uh, special, just even walking. Walking 10 minutes a day even uh, has been shown by research to have a tremendous benefit on anybody who does that. Uh, just get your heart pumping a little bit above a resting rate. It doesn't have to be where you're panting or sweating. And just, so it's, uh, you know, taking along nicely, but you can still t- have a conversation if you want to, and you'll get a lot of benefit. If you do that every day, just 10 minutes, uh, huge, huge benefit just from doing that alone. Uh, it's best if you do your walking outdoors because then it helps you get yourself out of yourself uh, into, uh, you know, uh, the greater outdoor here in Hawaii, of course, we are really fortunate and lucky to be able to look at the ocean, look at the mountains, look at something that's greater than us, which helps pull us out of our little confined uh, sense of self so that uh, we can uh, create space for us to grow into, uh, in, which, of course, is what all healing is. You know, uh, Again, I like to people, uh, remind people that the, uh, I'm a word nerd. So when you look at the word health and and uh, healing, uh, and whole, uh, you'll notice that the the root is the same for all of them, meaning to become whole. 
Uh, even wow. the word holy, the word holy means to become whole. So uh, intuitively kind of makes sense. If you get a, a cut in your hand, you, what happens? Well, it becomes whole. It heals up. You know? So we know that healing is, is to become whole. So go out, move around, swim, bike, you know, dance. Uh, to me, dancing is the best exercise of all because you don't think of it as exercise. You're just having fun. And yet you're moving every part of your body in every which way. So all your core muscles are involved. You know, every, every bit of your body is involved in, in a good free-for-all dance. Yeah. So just go out and get wild. It makes you feel happy, which helps you, your health also. Your attitude is a critical part of your health as well. So that's all, all part of it. Uh, be involved with uh, group activities, communal, do communal stuff. Uh, so, again, uh, it helps. Well, you, you talked about that. You, you guys, you, you guys, uh, you guys had something, and we were talking about it earlier. But you mm -hmm. had a pretty nice, uh, nice and good, healthy uh, thing that you used to do there. And we can we uh, get back to the uh, the Ward Rafters because I mean we can't really gather at the moment. But my gosh, did you have a gathering place? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It was uh, my parents. Uh, when we first landed in Hawaii, my mom started working for Parks and Recreation, and she was uh, tasked to put on huge festivals, you know, like five-stage events at the, in Kapilani Park and on the North Shore and all around, you know, Ala Park, productions, stage productions, you know. And uh, she found, started a pantomime theater group here, too. And I remember doing a, she grabbed me to do a show in the zoo and we did a production of Peter and the Wolf there. And, and oh, she, wow. I, I, I was, uh, I was the wolf, you know? And so <laughs> I got to scare all the little kids who were sitting around in the audience, you know, <laughs> it was good fun. And uh, then uh, uh, I, uh, she, because of a background in radio, you know, uh, she noticed that the, there was no public radio here. So she said, Hawaii needs public radio. So she, incorporated Hawaii Public Radio, which at that time was Hawaii, uh, Hawaiian Islands Public Radio, and formed a board of directions. She was the chair chairperson of the board and uh, started uh, looking around for you know money to uh, get public radio started here. So um, uh, she met a lot of opposition because uh, many of the, the commercial stations didn't want any competition, you know, from uh, oh, okay. public radio that here. Makes sense. Sorry, I, but, I hear what you're saying now. She went to the legislature and she found a sympathetic ear in then Representative Neil Abercrombie, and uh, he helped uh, secure a $50,000 grant to get uh, public radio launched, get the first uh, equipment, and start building a station in the old quarry and uh, University of Hawaii Banoa. And uh, then, after uh, a couple of years, uh, she uh, let that go, and uh, Felix. Uh, Henry Felix became the chairperson, and then 1980. Uh, uh, Kate, uh, uh, Hawaii Public Radio had its first air, you know, and uh, they just last month celebrated four years of broadcasting. It's grown now to two stations with trans, uh, translators all around the, the whole island yeah. chain. Uh, so it's it's the only nation, uh, station, uh, public radio in the nation that has two stations, two streams, and that covers an entire state, you know. So uh, I can proudly say that my mom was the one who started Hawaii Public Radio here, you know. So uh, I just got uh, to say that having all classical all the time uh, radio station has yeah. done wonders for my mental health. Oh, yeah. 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 I listen to that mostly, too. Yeah. So uh, and then uh, uh, my dad and her, my mom uh, founded Hawaii uh, uh, Chamber, uh, Chamber Orchestra Hawaii. 
and uh, it was a forming uh, uh, a traveling chamber orchestra that went to the different venues, you know, churches, uh, theaters, uh, whatever you know they could find. But after decades, it was starting to be a drag because they had no control over the venue. You know, if they went to the church and the priest would say, "Oh no, you can't do anything on this part of the church or that altar," you know, and, and you can't uh, you know do this and that. So finally, uh, because we have a three-story house, the third floor was a huge empty loft. It was just unfinished uh, with unfinished floors. So my dad and I finished the floors. And we looked around and said, you know, we got this space here. Why don't we utilize it for our orchestra? Uh, because it had been used over the years. Uh, the first thing we did when we moved in 1967 was uh, fencing classes. Oh, and cool. Yeah, so uh, we'd met this uh, Bavarian fencing master, Ludwig, Ludwig Kugelmeier, and uh, and then a, name, a Brazilian man was there too, named uh, Ricardo, who was an Olympian uh, a saber. And he had actually lost a, a, an eye when a saber went through the mask and right into his eye. So, uh, but uh, he was my a good friend and also my nemesis. Because I'd, I'd be studying fencing, you know, with the with the fencing master, and no matter what I did, I just could not touch the guy. You know, he would just play with me, and there's a boop, touch, 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 and I get shit. You know, I'm like, no, I just, I mean, I'm a pretty good athlete myself, you know, but I, he was just so frustrating. Uh, but we would also have classes in our uh, third floor there. You know, we'd we'd be sure. doing stuff up there, and. Um, and then we, I found, my brother and I founded a folklore uh, performing group, international folklore. We do music and song and dance from, you know, Macedonia and Turkey and Serbia and, and Greece, you know, and uh, Israel and uh, uh, Slovenia, you know, just the whole Balkan, East European and, and Middle Eastern area. Yeah. So we had, a, I formed a small orchestra, about eight musicians and 12 uh, uh, pairs of dancers, you know, about 20, 24 dancers. And then sometimes, if we needed to gather, I, I because I also sang at sang at the Church of the Crossroads a choir. Uh, sometimes I'd I'd say, "Come on, guys, I need your help. We need, we're going to be doing a show at Mamiya Theater. You know, I need singers for Armenian songs or Greek songs or Turkish songs or whatever." You know? So I teach them wow. how to sing these songs. You know, and we do the performances in the theaters or wherever you know all over the place uh, for many years. And then uh, because of my daughter, when she was born in 91, I formed a nonprofit to, uh, to uh, help her uh, in any way I could uh, called Conductive right. Education Center of Hawaii. And uh, that was uh, a challenge too for five, six years. Uh, I had a board of directors and we did a lot of grant. I wrote grants in, you know, McInerney and, you know, here and there all over the place, different grants. To raise money to in order for once a year, I could put on a month-long camp free of charge to uh, to kids with cerebral palsy and their parents. And uh, because there was no people here to run the camps, I had to apply for H-1B visas and import people from Hungary or New Zealand or Canada or wherever, you know, California, wherever I could find an available professional called conductors. And uh, then I had to rent a condominium for the month for them to stay and you know, had the money for the salary and then find a suitable place, you know, that would be wheelchair accessible, usually a elementary school cafeteria or someplace, you know, a classroom. Uh, and then uh, recruit an army of volunteers to help out with the kids and build the furniture, the special furniture that was needed. And then, uh, you know, after a month uh, of, of, of all doing all this stuff and then 
start the grant writing and fundraising and groveling and praying and begging for money again and again. After six years, I just burned out and I said, I can't do this anymore. And especially one one month a year just wasn't enough to make a big enough difference for my daughter. So I even traveled to Israel to, you know, to see their system there because that's the only country where the federal government there actually supports this uh, conducted education system and, assists, uh, and centers in different cities around Israel uh, with about 30, 33%, about a third of the, of the funding. Uh, and I thought, how can, you know, how can we do that over here? And I just could not f- uh, find a way to do that because our system of government, everything's so very different than Israel. So um, anyway, uh, after all those years of, of the chamber orchestra, we decided, let's try to build upstairs. So we finished it up. We built a stage. We put in lighting. We put a sound system in. We uh, got a, a, a grant. When, when you say you put in a stage and you did all that, uh, is this yeah. just because of yours and your father's uh, extensive yeah. time spent and you guys yeah. were just knew what you were doing? Yeah, right. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And uh, we put we got a grand piano donated, uh, you know, there. And uh, another musician donated a, 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 a drum set. And, uh, you know, so it was all set to go. Uh, and we were talking about, well, first of all, what should we call this place? You know, I remember sitting by the front door and uh, my mom and dad and I. And I looked up at the ceiling and I said, well, see all these rafters here. Why don't we just call it Ward's Rafters? You know, and so oh, that's cool. OK, so that's how the name was born. And yeah. uh, then we were talking about the first because my dad and mom wanted to do jazz shows first on Sunday, Sunday afternoon. So we were planning you know, who to invite uh, to have the first jazz show. And my dad, of course, would be the bass player. And so uh, there was still a few things to finish up the the construction. And so my dad was finishing up. He went downstairs to the second uh, uh, floor uh, porch and he leaned over to where my mom was in the garden. He says, okay, honey, I think I'm done. And then he went upstairs to turn off some lights that he forgot and turn off and he dropped dead of a heart attack. Oh my God. It really was done. Yeah, uh, actually, he, he didn't totally die. He I I was downstairs and I heard this crash thump 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 as he was falling down the steps, and uh, then a silence. I said, "What was that?" And then another crash thump thump thump. He tried to get up and fell down the second flight of steps, and I ran upstairs and I find my dad lying on the kitchen floor, you know, on his back with his glazed eyes and his look, and he says, "This pressure, pressure, pressure." And my chest and my mom is sitting in the kitchen, you know, ash and looking, says, you know, what do I do? What do I do? So I helped my dad and he wanted to get up, I helped him to his bed. And as soon as he's there, he starts going into his death rattles, you know, just, and I, that was it. You know, I immediately, you know, the ambulance took a while to get there. I ran downstairs, got my daughter, brought her upstairs. He still, my dad still had enough consciousness. He looked at my daughter. He reached over, put his hand on, on her body and says, it's okay, honey. It's okay. And then he took his last breath and that was it. He was gone. Yeah. So the EMTs came in. They tried to drive blood. It was just black sludge coming out. He was clearly gone. You know, there's nothing to do. So uh, um, after, uh, you know, my mom and I was sitting around, uh, we started planning for the funeral. You know, so of course we said it's got to be a celebration of his life because he had so many friends, you know, in the community here. So the first celebra- the first uh, performance turned out to be the celebration of my dad's life. And wow, that place wow. was packed. You know, we can fit about 100 people inside, people all the way down the steps, packed in the driveway, all the way out in the street. You know, people couldn't get in because it was, you know, there's no way. 
So the jazz band was blaring away Dixieland because my dad was a Dixieland lover. And That's then, uh, you know, poems and celebrations and songs and stories, you know, and a lot of laughing and, and it was a good time, yeah? But then yeah. we decided yeah. that people were saying, why don't we keep this going, you know? So they said, okay, so next Sunday will be jazz, Sunday jazz, three to six. And uh, wow. that's how Wars Rafters got started, yeah? So, uh, and then people started calling, started calling, say, you know, we're not jazz. We play classical or we play bluegrass or we play, you know, you know Celtic music or whatever. Uh, is there a chance that we could perform there up to two because it's a cool space? So we said, okay, well, we have Friday evening, we have Saturday evening, nothing's happening here, so yeah, let's do it. So little by little, it grew, it grew, and then pretty soon we got calls from, you know, Europe. Uh, oh, so-and-so is going to be going through Hawaii. Can he, you know, perform there? And wow. so we ended up getting people, you know, like one guy, I remember, it was, it was the six-time world champion accordion player in six different categories <laughs> from Serbia, you know. And so he came and he just, you know, amazing guy, just what he did with his instrument. It was one of those electronic things that you can do anything, you know, and just unbelievable musician, you know, just a total monster, you know. And then we got, the, you know, uh, this cello player uh, who performed by dancing on a, on a stool and performing, you know, he was a monster in his instrument and he could play jokes and play serious and just totally enthralled, you know, and then we had uh, people like Barbosa Lima, you know, from Argentina, a world-class uh, uh, classical uh, uh, guitarist uh, performing there, and uh, overflow crowd, people couldn't get inside because, you know, we just can only fit about 100 people in there, uh, so uh, it's uh, just people would come from everywhere, oh, we heard about the place, you know, can we perform? And uh, at first, my mom was uh, doing, you know, she was uh, a master at publicity. You know, she would, uh, uh, because she had friends, you know, in the different newspapers. You know, she was, we were very good friends with uh, Wayne Harada, at the former Honolulu advertiser, you know, and she knew other people. As well. So she'd send out a, a newsreelist and they'd happily, you know, put it in, you know, into the papers. And uh, she, radio stations would, you know, and TV stations would put on, you know, so we'd have all this publicity. But then the city got on our case. And because we are in a residential area, uh, residential one, and uh, they said, you can't do that. And my mom's, you know, she's a feisty, you know, lady. She says, you know, screw you. We're going to do what we want to do. And, right, uh, right. and then uh, it ended up being a court case. And so my mom was uh, fined uh, for running a uh, illegal venue. And uh, I remember the inspectors coming and says, we got to see if you have public urinals here. And he says, huh, what are you talking about? This is our home, you know, <laughs> you know, and where are the fire exits and where are the fire exit signs, you know, and stuff like that. You know, I says, you guys are nuts. <laughs> so finally, uh, my mom was fined. I think it was $3,500, something like that. And then the community came together and says, let's put on a jazz festival and raise the money for you. And wow, so the wow. first Great Hawaiian Jazz uh, Blowout was born from that. And they raised the money, paid her fine, and my mom agreed. Okay, we were not we're not going to advertise anymore. But by then, the whole world knew about us already, you know. So uh, we didn't have to advertise. We just uh, I had a was building. Uh, we were building a mailing list. You know, at first it was just mailing, you know. And uh, my uh, my mom would, uh, you know, when it got to about three hundred mailing pieces, and she'd have to get the envelopes and the stamps and the stuff and the, and print out everything. I said, Mom, this is crazy. You know, it's, uh, going to the post office, you know, there's this thing called email. 
let's start building an email list. <laughs> so we started building up the email list and uh, uh, pretty soon it grew to over 5,000 people, you know, and uh, I figured by, by the time we were done 24 years later, uh, we'd gone through at least a hundred thousand people, you know, going by our attendance. I was keeping attendance and how many, you know, email list. Yeah. So uh, we would just send out an invitation, come, you know, and then people would spread it through Facebook and so on. So, you, okay, you, you, this you Sunday. You had 100,000 people come through your house in, in yeah. 24 years. Yeah, at least. That's your, that's your house. Yeah. That's not. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. And uh, people would forward the messages to their friends and say, okay, it's this secret place in Kaimuki, you know where, you know. <laughs> And so uh, a lot of times yeah, our place would be packed and we'd have to turn people away. Just, I'm sorry, you can't, there's no room, you know. There'd be like where, this. Where, you know, where in Kaimuki, uh, like roundabout, you know, I mean, I, I know you're not, I don't want you to give me the real, the whole address and all that, but what, uh, where, yeah, where near we're, in Kaimuki? Yeah, obviously nothing's happening anymore, but we're one block mark of KCC. Yeah, so we overlook Kahala. We have a great view. When the, when the days are clear, we can see three islands from our windows, yeah. So it's a, the view up there is, is fantastic. It's one of the reasons why it was so special a place, you know, because we built eventually a bay window there. So people would sit, you know, the table and they bring their own wine and food and eat and drink and share food with people. It was like a giant family gathering every weekend, you know. So uh, this went on for 20, 24 years. The last nine years, uh, my mom was starting to get a little uh, difficulty with uh, cognition. Um and she'd be struggling with, you know, typing the message. And I, you know, she'd ask me to help her. And finally she says, please take over, you know. So the last nine years of Ward Raptors, I was running the show, sending out the invitations, you know, securing a venue, uh, uh, performers and so on. And we'd have everything from, you know, jazz, obviously, to classical, to to uh, to uh, ethnic music, to uh, uh, theater productions, to uh, improv comedy, you know. I mean, anything you'd imagine. You know, that would, who was who was your uh, your your favorite uh, the the favorite event that you guys hosted? What was your favorite? Uh, one of my favorite guys was a man named Jeff Linsky, who's a world class guitarist. Uh, he's having a little trouble nowadays because of uh, some joint issues. You know, he's getting older, but uh, he's a monster on the. The, it's a, not a full-size guitar. It's kind of like, like a quattro-type guitar. What he does, it, go online. You'll Google him. Let okay. Jeff Linsky. You'll, you'll see all oh, kinds no, of man, stuff. I can't wait. Yeah. yeah. Uh, amazing musician and very entertaining. His his father actually was living here until he died recently. And okay. he would bring, bring his dad to our performances sometimes too. So wow. it was a special place for him over here. Uh, so uh, I, you know, there's several classical musicians here too that would come and perform. It was such a variety, uh, just very eclectic, you know, very eclectic stuff, yeah. So um, um, when uh, this our last performance, I think, was 2019, uh, 2017, 2017, yeah, right. So uh, it's about five years now uh, since we closed down. Uh, what happened was uh, uh, my mom was I had to take in the last two years I had to do everything for her. Yeah, I had to feed her, I had to bathe her, I had to change her diaper, you know, carry her upstairs because she didn't hardly walk. Uh so she could be with her, you know, greet everybody at the door with her hugs and kiss. She was a total hugger and kisser, you know, 
a real what I call Yiddish mommy, my Jewish mommy. Yeah. So uh, uh, she uh, was in the kitchen and fell down and cracked a, a bone in her arm. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I took her to uh, the hospital to get it splinted. You know, it wasn't serious, but it was a crack. I brought her back home, and we're sitting in the living room on the second floor. And she looks at her splint and she says, "What's this?" I said, "Oh, you cracked your bone earlier today." She says, "Oh," because she didn't remember. Yeah, and she says, "How long is this going to be here?" And she said, "And I said, oh, typically about six weeks or so until it fully heals up." And she looked at me and said, "Oh, no, I can't do this anymore." And so I put her to bed that night, and I had a baby monitor by her so I could monitor while you know with my wife and I downstairs. Yeah, and yeah. typically throughout the night, every once in a while, ow, 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 you know, because she had bone and bone, you know, she could not ris- raise her arms below you know shoulder height, you know, it was all frozen up. And that night, just silence, nothing. So at six o'clock, the sun was just starting to come up. So I went upstairs to check on her. I opened the door and the sun beamed just like a spotlight in my eyes. And I look at my mom and there's the sun right in her eyes, you know, and she's lying there. And I look at her and she goes, and that was it, her last breath. Wow. She was wow. all hot and sweaty. And I, I could just see her spur just going up the sun, sunbeam, you know, just, it was just a magical moment for me, you know. So I embraced her, I hugged her. I called on the baby monitor to, for my wife, you know, to come upstairs. Mm-hmm. And uh, we just hugged and cried and and lay with her for a, a long time, and then I called hospice and they arranged for the body to be taken away, mm-hmm. and uh, that was how she chose to go. You know, she just made a conscious decision that that night. Okay, yeah, you know, she's almost ninety six years old. I've had a good life. Yeah, a lot of good things. Yeah, time to go. So to yeah. me, that yeah. it was just a wonderful way to live a life and a wonderful way to. To transition, I mean, to the- perspective. I mean, she's five and a half decades on me right yeah. now. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, wow, yeah. what a what a what an amazing life, an amazing lady. You're you're in an amazing family, Doc. Yeah, it's absolutely yeah. amazing. Yeah, I mean, thank you so much for sharing the story of the Raptors and you yeah. know uh, and all that, uh, Hunter. I know. Uh, so we had, had some- uh, we had a great celebration of life, you know, down the hill on 18th Avenue. Just- and it was kind of funny to me also that uh, the day before the celebration, I was there to do paperwork, you know, with the funeral home. And there was a funeral going on by some Korean family, and they were Catholic. And they're all in black and veils and crying and somber. And I was thinking, oh, my God, you know, is that a celebration? That's a mourning, you know, that's what a different way to have a funeral, you know, compared to us yeah. next day. Song, music, dancing, you know, uh, stories, laughing. And then at the end, there I am in the middle of a group. You know, I'm holding the urn with my mother's ashes in the air. And there's, you know, 40, 50 people dancing around me doing Havana Gila, you know, yelling at the top of voice, Havana Gila, Havana, you're just shouting and having a wonderful time. And I'm saying, yeah, that's how you celebrate life. You know, that's Absolutely. how you Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, when my mom died, the house which was in trust, the, 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 the trust dissolved. Okay. And my mom, my, me and my brother became co-owners. And my brother, who had not been in Hawaii since 1972, 73, something like that, uh, was, in the, was in the mainland. He uh, demanded that I buy him out. Uh, the only way I could do that was to put the house, uh, take a mortgage out. 
So I had no choice. Um, I didn't have enough income to pay for it. So I had to shut down Wars Rafters and uh, turn the second and third floor into a rental space and rent it out so that with that income, I can then pay off, you know, pay for the yeah. more. Yeah. So that's the reason why. And nowadays, of course, with COVID, Rafters would not be possible. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, uh, you know, I still get messages almost every day. Oh, I miss the road rafters. I wish, blah, blah, blah. Oh, speaking of Googling, by the way, Mike, uh, if you're interested, you know, just go online, yeah. put in Wars Rafters. You'll see all kinds of videos of events and shows that have, that people took over the years. Yeah. I, I may or may not have done that already. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So kind of I, had to re, I had to do a little bit of research on you, Doc. Not too much. Okay. I had to do a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Cool. So at least you got the vicarious, you know, secondhand uh, compared to Hunter, who was there firsthand. So nah, I know. And I'm the music guy out of the two of us. Crazy, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so on that, if um, you would like to share um, any of your favorite performances, maybe a link to those, you can uh, send those to me. I'll put them in the show notes. And on oh. that, um, is there any uh, way that you would like people to get a hold of you and to uh, extend your uh, mm. your knowledge and your wonderfulness to, to our listeners? Well, uh, email is the obvious way. Uh, my email has been public for decades. So CECH, which stands for... Conductive Education Center Hawaii. That's where it came from, yeah. C-E-C-H, or another way to say it is Charlie Echo, Charlie Hotel, at pixie.com, papaindiaxrayindia.com. And, uh, uh, you know, that's one way. Uh, you can call me up. My phone, I used to guard my cell phone, but now it's very public too, so what the heck. 808-489-0506. Yeah. Excellent. And props yeah. for learning the uh, NATO phonetic alphabet. Very, oh, very good. Yeah, I, I learned that a long time ago, along with uh, Morse code. So, 